Someone long ago offered the sage advice, if you find a perfect church, do not join it, because you'll ruin it. Only sinners join churches, don't they? And every sinner that joins a church, joins a church of other sinners. Life on a fallen planet assures us that God's people are going to disappoint us. Indeed, that we will disappoint ourselves in the way that we relate to one another as the body of Christ. And for this, there is great need for forgiveness and grace that we extend to one another. But branching off into another direction, life in a fallen world also assures that we will together, as a body, face disappointments and trials as a community. Now there are local churches that seem to log charts of unbroken success, no problems at all. Everything is top grade. Growth is unending. Every goal seems to be met a little before schedule. But such churches are likely no more than religious businesses run by CEOs sufficiently adept at public relations as to create the illusion of ecclesiastical utopia. It's a dream. Life together in a vibrant body of genuine believers comes with a lot more pain, doesn't it? We face bitter providences, circumstances that crush our dreams. We face the bitter disappointment of people within our assembly who fail morally from time to time. And the temptation as we look at these trials and difficulties and the the angst of living in a world that has fallen and broken, the temptation comes to us sometimes to complain. I don't like it this way. Sometimes to blame someone. If things aren't going the way that they ought to go and there's these disappointments, someone is for sure to blame. Sometimes it is to grow disillusioned and discouraged and to withdraw because our vision of this ideal Christian community is suddenly shattered. But we must understand this as God's people. Until Jesus returns, the shattering of our dreams of a flawless community down here is the doorway into real-life ministry in which we learn to throw ourselves in desperation upon God together as a church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written, By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. As he writes, indeed it is as we face disappointment together, as we face it, the harsh realities of a fallen world and community, as we face it, it is then that we learn to trust God together as a church, it is then that we work effectively together to His glory rather than just chasing fantasies. This is where we find ourselves as we come to the second half of the first chapter of Acts. If you make your way there in your Bibles, in the second half of Acts 1, we see such an authentic Christian community in action. We do not see one that is living some utopian dream where everything is right and all that it ought to be, but we see a church coming together, yet we wouldn't define it as a church at this point, but God's people coming together and grappling with the disappointments of their life together and dealing with it. 
Now, right now, Jesus' disciples have witnessed an exhilarating 40-day period, you will remember, in which the risen Savior has appeared repeatedly and taught the disciples about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The larger mission that will come after the baptism of the Spirit is in verse 8 of this first chapter. You will receive this power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the farthest reaches of the planet. The disciples obey Jesus, as we would suspect, and the scene is set for us in verses 12 and following of waiting for Jesus. Verse 12, as we pick up there, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, sometimes called Thaddeus. Jesus ascends into heaven, remember, from the Mount of Olives in this short Sabbath day's journey, less than a mile away, they make their way back into Jerusalem. And there they come to what the Greek text calls the upper room, a definite article there. Possibly the upper room where Jesus proclaimed that the Spirit would come. Possibly the upper room where he kept Passover with the disciples. We don't know what the upper room was. But if you get in your mind, think flat roofs, Fairly small houses probably, but it's one larger box on the ground floor and a smaller box on the top floor. That's the upper room, reached by an outside staircase. These rooms served particularly for the wealthy as something of a living room. It was a place off the street where it was quiet. It was a place that was often rented out to uh, people that would desire gatherings of larger numbers. There is some room in Jerusalem. They go back there to this room and they are waiting there for Christ. And what are they doing while they wait here? Verse 14 makes clear, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and His brothers. So the eleven disciples are joined by others as they go back into Jerusalem. We'll take just a brief rabbit trail here, but one is Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think there's a lot to be said from the fact that Mary is never mentioned again in the New Testament after this point. Her death is not recorded. Her participation with these earlier followers is not recorded. Nothing more is said but that she was here at this place at this time. Now Mary was an amazing woman, a godly woman that I think we should honor as a servant of the Lord. If there's any woman in the Bible that I'd love to meet, it would be Mary. But the New Testament simply does not support the notion that she was uniquely revered among the followers of Christ. She just simply is not elevated to that type of status in the text of Scripture. Nor was she a perpetual virgin, as some believe, not because they are basing that on any historical evidence, but they're basing that on a false theology of sexuality. But there are those who say that she was a perpetual virgin, but we see here in the text that 
She is there with the brothers of Jesus. Now there are attempts that uh, make these brothers to be Jesus' first cousins. Others would say that these were children uh, from Joseph in an earlier marriage. But again, there's utterly no evidence of that and no reason to take the text that way without any such indication. These were Mary's sons. The way the word is used, it could mean brothers and sisters, as we would say it, but at least they are Mary's sons in the plural. During his life, that's an intriguing line in itself, isn't it? These are Jesus' brothers. During his life, Jesus' brothers rejected him as Messiah. They thought he was insane. And you can imagine there might be some animosity between you and a brother who is perfect. They didn't get along with him, apparently. They say, he's not Messiah. We know this guy. He's our brother. But Jesus appears to James after his resurrection. We don't know what took place in that private meeting. But between Jesus and James, something took place, and James became a fervent follower of his brother, Savior. Amazing, isn't it? And other brothers with him, at least one other, have now joined Jesus in these 40 days from the time that Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, these brothers had become followers of their brother and master. They're gathered here praying, seeking the Lord together in this 10-day prayer meeting. They were praying, it says here, with one accord. We have the picture of a body of believers with one mind, the Greek text reads. They pray fervently, united in belief and in purpose Blessed is that company of believers, truly, that knows how to unite in prayer. A body of believers who can come together and know they can do more than simply talk about life, but can beseech the God of heaven together in fellowship. Wherever we pray together, there is something beautiful that is taking place as we do so in spirit and in truth. And that's what we find here. God's people are always to be a praying people, a people who pray together, not just privately, but those who join together for fervent prayer to accomplish in assembly what in some sense cannot be accomplished on their own. They gather in one another's presence as those that Christ has redeemed and they storm the throne of grace seeking to be prepared for this coming of the Spirit. But there's 11 of these disciples. We go back to that point. We know Jesus had chosen 12 as His official representatives and so it leads to the question, why 12? Is this a random number that Jesus just chose? Kind of sounds like a good number. Or maybe there were 12 people that he knew, and as he worked it out, could have been 13, could have been 10, could have been 9, could have been 40. He just came up with 12 people that seemed to work well. Is that the case? There are some who would like us to believe that for certain reasons, but I don't think we can if we're honest with Scripture. Luke chapter 22, if you'll turn back there, like, if possible, for you to put your eyes on this text. It is a crucial one for our understanding the work of the twelve apostles of Christ and also of their question in chapter 1 whether or not Christ's kingdom was going to now be established. Luke chapter 22 and verse 28. Luke 22 and verse 28, Jesus says, "...you are those who have stayed with Me in My trials." And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink 
at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging twelve tribes of Israel. I don't think I'd find much argument that these men had no capacity at this place and time to think of eating, drinking, and sitting on thrones as figurative speech. These men believe they're going to be eating and drinking with Jesus in his kingdom, and they're going to be sitting on thrones that they can feel with their backside. These are real thrones. This is a real meal. This is a promise of the Messiah to his followers. But there's only 11 of them now, not the 12 that he chose. The harsh reality that the disciples have suffered together and must now face together is that one of their own, Judas Iscariot, defected and is now dead. We think of that, it's really hard to imagine. Judas watched Jesus perform miracles. Judas was there when Jesus taught people. And I would assume Judas himself hung on every word at certain portions of that ministry. Judas saw before him a sinless life. He saw the devotion of Jesus Christ to his Father. And he served as a trusted treasurer of the group. The disciples believed in him. They believed He was one of them. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, as Judas goes out, no one tackles Him. They trust Him. They believe in Him. This one that's gone with them through all these paces. But although the last 40 days have helped these disciples understand the betrayal of Judas was part of God's plan, they still had to deal with the sobering reality that one of their own had betrayed the Master. One of their own one of the ones who had walked with them through this whole experience, Judas turned against Christ and betrayed Him to our enemies. And we're talking real enemies here. People that want you dead. And Judas turned Jesus over to them. But what we witness here is a group of believers that are laboring together in dependence upon the Lord. They are laboring together to work through this grave disappointment. They know it is part of God's plan, but they're working through it together as they face it squarely. And we find then at verse 15 a description of the demise of Judas. Back to Acts 1 in verse 15. A description of the demise of Judas in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. We don't know if all 120 were there in this room, but very likely that's, that's what is indicated here. But there were 120 that were in Jerusalem at this time. There were others we know in Galilee. But these gather here in company, and Peter stands up and says, Brothers, verse 16, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. But, verse 20, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The God who works out all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11, is working out the betrayal of Judas for God's glory. 
Do you have a view of God wringing his hands in heaven in disbelief that Judas had betrayed Jesus? Coming up with plan B now that Judas had done this? Peter says, no, let's go back, believers, to the Old Testament text and we find there that God prophesied this betrayal. He said it would come in the text of Scripture. Psalm 69, more on that in a moment. But we have, I think here, a decided matter of application for each one of us. On a personal level, we can draw from this text alone, as well as certainly from many others, that no matter the evil that visits our life as a church or an individual, God is not overwhelmed. He's not coming up with plan B on the fly. He is sovereign over all things. He's never fooled. But we should also not get the idea here that this drained the trauma of Judas' defection that the disciples were somehow unaffected by his betrayal because they knew it was coming. That's not the case. It was only after the event that they learned what David ultimately meant in these Psalms. Judas' betrayal was, I believe, a heart-wrenching disappointment to the disciples and a horrifying experience for Jesus. Luke parenthetically adds a historical note We'll notice that for a moment and then come back to the Psalter and the texts that support what happened to Judas. But verse 18, we find a little bit of the history here. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. His, his innards gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Let's turn to Matthew 27 briefly. And we look at a very different picture of Judas' demise. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 3. Matthew 27 and verse 3 reads that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the pieces of silver, the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Well, Matthew 27 and Luke's account here in Acts 1 obviously contradict. You can't have both together. They're two different accounts of Jesus' death the critics would say, but I don't see any reason that we have to run that direction. We can put the two together. What Matthew is doing is giving details that Luke is not giving and vice versa. How do we put it together? As we put all of the details together and seek to discern a scenario, there's only really, it seems, two possibilities. The first is that Judas hung himself. His body hung there until his rotting internal organs swelled up in the heat of the Israeli sun, and he burst open and was found with his entrails having gushed out of his body. The other option is that he hung himself 
The rope broke, his body tumbled down a ravine and split open at the bottom, his internal organs gushing out. Now you look at those two scenarios, putting the two together, there's not a whole lot of difference between the two, is there? The only question is whether or not the rope broke and how fast they found his body. Judas hanged himself. We can trust the integrity of Scripture here. This is not a contradiction or two different scenarios that are being played out. Rather, a hideous and tragic end to a pathetic story. Just think of Judas, how wonderful that money must have sounded in his ears. It's all over with Jesus. I think there's some indication that he had really had it with Jesus. Jesus is just not doing what he's supposed to do as a Messiah. He could see, as they say, the handwriting on the wall. He knows that Jesus is not going to get this kingdom thing done. He switches sides and, I am sure, begins to calculate in his mind how he's going to spend these 30 pieces of silver. With this price, he can buy his own slave. Not a man of tremendous means, we wouldn't assume, but he's a man that can now buy his own slave along with a lot of other things with this money. But listen, the rewards of sin are always an illusion. The rewards of sin are always an illusion. And any momentary pleasure that sin might yield turns eventually to bitterness. There's only one exception. The only sin that you will ever live at peace with in your life is the sin that you have confessed to God and abandoned. In His mercy, as He forgives us our sin, we can look back at what we have done to violate Him and we can live with it. We can live at peace with it. It doesn't spiral into bitterness because we have truly been forgiven and we've turned from the sin. But any sin that we continue to play around with is going to lead to bitterness. It will never bring joy. The rewards of sin are always an illusion that lead to utter bitterness. And Judas displays that in one horrifying scene. At this point, Peter then appeals back to the Hebrew Psalter after that brief aside in verses 18 and 19 to add that historical note. And we come back onto the trail of his thought here at verse 20 of the sermon. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Drawing here from Psalm 69 and verse 25, and then he quotes another Psalm 109.8 when he says, Let another take his office. Now both of these psalms are lament psalms in which the king seeks the intervention of God against his enemies. We're going to run off a little trail here for a brief time. We'll come back to it. But hang on. This isn't necessarily easy plowing as we look at how Peter here in his sermon uses the Old Testament Psalter. Jesus taught his followers to recognize that these Psalms of David were largely prophetic pointers to Jesus, David's greater son, by way of corporate solidarity. As we read these Psalms, sometimes, isn't it the case that it causes you to blush? When you think about the psalmist and how he's saying, vindicate me with respect to my enemies. 
and bring destruction to them. But what Jesus has taught his followers to understand is that when we run into psalms like that, we need to realize that Jesus is speaking in some sense. Now we have to be careful with that. It's not a blanket principle. But often it is Jesus' words who are ultimately being spoken. And that's what Peter is seeing here. Peter's not wrenching these texts out of context. They deal with the suffering and the vindication of God's king and the punishment of the king's enemies. Who is that king? That king is David. Who is the greater son of David? It is Jesus Christ. And so as David is writing about his enemies, there is a greater king, Jesus, and there is an ultimate enemy, in this case, Judas. And so as David is writing about his trials with his enemies, he's ultimately pointing forward to the antitype, Jesus Christ. There's type, antitype. There's the one who comes before. That's the flower girl in the wedding. And there's the antitype. That's the one who comes after, the real deal, the bride. David as king with his enemies is the type. Jesus the antitype comes to fulfill the prophecy. Reading the Psalms in that way, Peter realizes that the ultimate betrayer is not one who betrays King David, but one who betrays King David's son, Jesus Christ. And so he says accurately, and honorably in his application, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Judas and his betrayal of Jesus is prophesied in the Psalter 69. What is more, in Psalm 109, Peter finds this statement, let another take his office. This is again a Psalm of David. This is again someone who has betrayed the King of God. The Messiah now ultimately in Jesus, it must then point to Judas, the ultimate betrayer of God. So this is what the Scripture has taught, that this man, his days will be few. He doesn't quote that in Psalm 69, but that's the first part of that verse. His days will be few. His camp will be desolate. Someone else should take his office. And we lead then He leads then, Luke does, as he writes the text to the replacement of Judas, beginning at verse 21. The replacement of Judas. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So navigating the devastating defection of Judas, these early believers begin to repair the damage. Jesus is not going to float a note down from heaven and say who it's supposed to be. He has ascended on high. And so now they are beginning to depend upon Jesus, however, in His absence, to give them indication as to who should replace Judas. Someone must become a witness. Now that's a key thought here. Somebody must become a witness, one who serves to establish objective facts by means of his verifiable observation of those facts. So Peter argues that another man take Judas's office, a man who is qualified to serve as a witness of Jesus' ministry and as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Somebody has to be able to say, I saw the living Christ. Somebody who went in and out among them. I've had often an image in my mind of the disciples 
and Jesus, 13 men going around for about three and a half years through Israel. That's really not the picture we should have in our mind. There were times when they did get alone. But often as they are working their way around and proclaiming the gospel, there's many others who are associating with them. Remember there were those women who came and supported them financially, and I would imagine also were seeing to their daily needs as Jesus was teaching. There were others as well. Remember Jesus sends out 70 people to be his witnesses earlier in his ministry. Who are these people? They are associating with the disciples all the time. There were a number of people that were there. Among this group, there were those who were there from the baptism of John, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, to the time that he ascends into heaven. We need to have one of these men take this position. Going back to Luke 22, we know why it needs to be filled. There's going to be 12 thrones. They need to reign on 12 thrones. There needs to be 12 men, and two men can't share one throne. It's just the way that it is. Jesus chose 12. There's been this great disappointment in Judas, but now the church is going to work to see that one replaces Judas. Now, I just add here, and it is important, it probably isn't something that keeps you awake at night, but it's really important to know that the reason Judas is being replaced is not because he died. He's being replaced because he failed morally. He was not a witness of Jesus. Maybe we could say it's partly because he died before the baptism of the Spirit. But even if he had lived after the baptism of the Spirit, he was not a faithful witness of Christ. The point being that as the disciples die, they're not all replaced. James will die 15 years later. His death is recorded in Acts chapter 12. And there's no discussion to replace James. It's not as every apostle who dies is now going to be replaced. There were only 12. And once those 12 died, their witness was sufficient. Jesus is alive. And from them the witnesses of others have carried forward to this very day. But as they work their way to establish this 12th person, they come down to two names. And whether they can't figure out which of the two is better, they're divided between themselves, they have two parties that have developed, we don't know. We don't know why they come up with two names, but they do. We read in verse 23, And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, the second man. Now, Joseph, it wasn't that they had a hard time figuring out a name for him. These aren't all first names. One's a, first name, one's a surname, one's a nickname, as uh, many of us would have. But this Joseph is one man, and Matthias is another, and apparently, for some reason, they're not able to decide between these two men. Now think about the process that's led to this place. It has to be a person who meets certain qualifications, But we've come down to these two. Now what? And they prayed, verse 24, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. We've put these two forward. We believe that they're the best ones, or somebody among us believes that one of these is the best ones. Which one, Father, do you choose? Which one will Jesus choose? We take it that way. Verse 25, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's an idiom meaning to go to hell. He went to hell for his rejection of Messiah. And his betrayal has led to his endless punishment. 
But that's where this one is gone. And there is, there's, just, there's, a, there's a note there of, of great angst, isn't there? This one who was among us who went to his place. A devastating thing in some respects. But having come to trust in the purposes of God and now leaning on the purposes of God in prayer, they say, will it be Joseph or will it be Matthias? And then they do something really, really weird. Verse 26, they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. There were different ways of casting lots, but the most common was to take two stones distinct from one another, obviously, to put them in a bag or in a clay pot and shake the stones around, reach in and grab one or pour them out, and the first one that comes out is the answer. So this stone is Joseph, and this stone is Matthias, and we will determine in this way which one God has chosen. Believing, as Proverbs 16 and verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, But the whole disposing is of the Lord. You flip a coin into the air, heads or tails, you have no idea. God does. He knows which side's going to land up. For me, it's always the opposite of the one I want to win the football toss. But, and probably virtually everything else, because we remember the ones we didn't get our way. But you know, all of that, humor aside, is God's doing. Why do they flip a coin? Why do they cast lots? And when do we do that? Well, I think it's instructive that they never do it again after the Spirit comes. Isn't that interesting? In Acts chapter 6, they got a hard decision to make. In Acts chapter 13, they have a hard decision to make. There's differences of opinion through Acts. Never do they cast lots. After the baptism of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit, the conclusion I would come to, a conclusion from silence, but it would seem that lots are no longer needed. We now depend wholly on the Spirit of God to give us guidance and discernment as to where we should go. We find no evidence in the early church that this practice continued, but here it is an Old Testament practice. Here it is something that the priest did to discern the will of God. David himself as a king reverted to this method numerous times, and so they are within range to do it. They're not losing their marbles here. They are saying, God, it's between these two. Which one do you want? Now, Joseph, I mean, my, I, maybe I'm too tender-hearted here, but I just feel for this guy. <laughs> I got that close to one of the thrones of Israel, and I, I lost on a coin toss. You know what? I believe with all my heart, we're just reasoning here a little bit, but do you think Joseph ran away sulking? If this man rose up among all these believers, all these followers of Christ, and the disciples, the apostles themselves said, this man is one of the top two, I don't think he was the kind of man that had the kind of character that he ran away sulking and always feeling bitter about this lot. He was undoubtedly a man of high moral character, and I have no doubt that he rested in the decision of God just like the rest did Because in the end, it's really not Matthias who's the man. It's the grace of God and the impossibility from our side of understanding. It is his calling. His calling is not always clear to us. Not always what we might think it would be. 
And I wonder if I speak to someone here today who feels as if God has set you aside with respect to some ministry. Do you suppose that God has acted arbitrarily in this? That God has acted in such a way just flipping a coin and leaving it to chance? It's just the break of the draw? No, God has work for you to do. Joseph was a witness of the risen Christ. And he was just as much after this lot was cast as he was before it. He had a job to do to go out into the world and go wherever God would allow him to go to proclaim the message of Jesus. And I think that's probably what Joseph did. And maybe he didn't, but it's certainly what his calling was to be. And knowing the character of the man, as far as we do just in this scene, we would assume that he knew God is sovereign. It's not about Joseph. It's about Jesus. And I will take the message of Jesus with the ability that God gives me. And when you meet Jesus in glory, all that will ever matter is that you were faithful to the stewardship that He gave you. Not to the one that you dreamed about. Not to the one that you think you should have had. You will be held accountable for the stewardship that He put in your hands. And that stewardship for every last one of us is to take the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and to proclaim it to a lost world. It is to stand for Christ and to be faithful to Him. In the end, what's going to matter for every one of us is not the unique providential calling of God, but the faithfulness of stewardship with which we have done what He's given us to do. It will be in the end what it was for Jesus. John 17 and verse 4, he said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. He didn't finish a dream that he wished had been his work. He finished the work that God had put in his hands. And I trust that that's what Joseph did. And I trust that's what each one of us will strive to do. To do the work God has given us to do. We find here in this primitive setting a gathering of believers tackling a moral tragedy, but doing so with dignity, with devotion together, seeking God in prayer. They're not running around after this perfect dream of the way everything ought to have been. They're resting in the grace of God and in the providence of God. We witness here their fervent dependence on the Lord to do what is right as they pray, to focus on what Jesus wants. Lord, which one of these men do You want? We see them searching the Scriptures as a means of deciphering their life circumstances. Certainly, we're not going to apply the Psalms the way that they did here necessarily. They are the direct apostles of Jesus Christ in this matter. But you see them repairing to the Word of God coming back to the truth of Scripture and asking, what does it say? What light do we have here? Listen again to Bonhoeffer's words. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. We can love, as he said, a dream community that's in our heads. Or we can love the fallen one that's right in front of us. 
We can wish that things were other than they were, or we can get busy dealing with the life that God has placed in our hands as a body. Christian, it is indeed as we face disappointment together, as we deal with moral failing, as we deal with circumstances that go against us, it is then, in the face of these harsh realities of a fallen world and community, it's then that we learn to trust God as a church and work effectively together to His glory rather than to chase the wind. And let us depart the assembly today rejoicing that our faith is not grounded in fantasy, but in the objective reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well and has brought together an objective assembly that is to pour out their lives in proclaiming that truth and working together through the trials that we face. I may speak to someone here this morning You have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You are holding on to sin. You love the pleasure that it gives. You don't want to follow Jesus as the master of your soul. Let me say, you have been duly warned in this passage. You look at what has happened to Judas. That's not just one sad boy. That's the end of the unbeliever. God's common grace meets you every day, giving you breath and life and joy, food and health and clothing perhaps. But there's a day when that grace is going to be done. A day when you are going to walk away from God and He's going to walk away from you. And in that day, there will be no joy left in your experience forever. You will go to your place and it will be a place where there is no God. That's where Judas went And that's where you are headed if you have not come to trust Jesus Christ and His payment for your sin. If you've not had your sins washed away and have not come to believe in what He has done for you, come today. You have nothing to lose but bitterness and wrath. You have everything to gain in the beauty of Jesus Christ. Come to Him today. And together, may we join as a body of Christ and continue to deal with this life as He's called us to do. And may we someday stand before Him having fulfilled our stewardship, the one He put in our hands, the one with one another, the one that deals with His grace in our lives individually. Let's bow for prayer. Father, what wonders there are in Your Word. And we praise You for this text and ask that we would each take it to heart, that You draw to saving faith any that are separated from You. And that for those of us who know You, we would thank You, our Father, our God, that we are Your people called to carry out Your Word and Your truth. May we do so with gladness and joy in community with one another. Through Christ we pray. Amen.